Welcome to No Higher Calling Family. I'm Simeon. And I'm Brittany. As we seek to reflect Christ in our marriage and parent our children in a world defined by compounded confusion, we desire to anchor our hearts to the truths of God's Word. Join us on our journey. We hope to encourage you in your calling and equip you to pass truth to the next generation. Hello and welcome to the No Higher Calling family episodes, and uh, we are going to be looking at some things today. I'm joined by my wife, Brittany, as usual. <laughs> You're joined by me. I'm joined by you. <laughs> I'm joined, or wait, what? I'm joined by you. <laughs> hey, it's Simeon and Brittany, and we have our third wheel with us. We have Flora, uh, so you might hear a squeak or a grunt here and there. Um, welcome to the family, little Flora. She's the guest everyone actually wanted to hear from. <laughs> So we're going to get back into our couples of the Bible study today. Um, Our first one was last month. We looked at Elimelech and Naomi, uh, gleaned from kind of, to be honest, their bad example, which that's really what this whole study is, um, is just looking at some of the undesirable couples and realizing that God gives all scripture for a reason, Um, the things that we want to emulate and the things that we want to avoid. Um, and we can learn a lot from these people that he has recorded their stories of. And so we're here today, jumping in with another one. We're going to study Lot and Mrs. Lot. So we'll do a little bit of history here, and I'll kind of go through the story of uh, Lot. There's actually not a whole lot about Lot in the Bible. Um, there's even less about his wife. Um, but his story begins in Genesis 13, when God calls Abraham out of his country and into Canaan. And so God calls him out, he leaves his home country, and he takes his nephew Lot with him. And again, there's no mention of Lot's wife, oddly, until we get to Sodom and Gomorrah. There is no mention of her at all. So we don't really know when he got married, if he was married at this point, or if he married her after he moved to Sodom. We don't know anything about that situation other than um, we know a little bit about Abraham's family history, and there are other women mentioned in Abraham's family history, but not her, which I find interesting. That's Genesis 13 when he leaves. Genesis 14 um, is the story of Lot and Abraham parting ways. Um, Genesis 14 is where the servants of Abraham and the servants of Lot begin to have conflict and as a solution to that problem, they decide to separate from one another. Um, which turns out to be a very, very bad idea for Lot. Abraham gives him the option of going whichever direction he wants to go. And so Lot chooses to, the Bible says, pitch his tent toward Sodom, um, which meant that he did not go into the city at that point. He was just choosing the land there. And the Bible says that he chose that land because it was very green and good for his cattle. And so it made rational sense for him to go in that direction. As we find out um, through reading the scripture, we find that the cities that are in the valley where Sodom is, are extremely wicked cities. Later on in the story, we find that Lot is abducted by the kings of that area. They go to war, and as part of their raids against Sodom, Gomorrah, and another city, um, they take Lot as a prisoner, along with a lot of the women and different people. And the Bible specifically mentions the women when Lot is returned, so I wonder if at this point isn't where Mrs. Lot enters the picture, but perhaps before that. And then in Genesis chapter 19 is when um, the angels come to visit Lot. The They drag Lot and his family out of the city. The city gets rained on by fire and brimstone and completely wiped out. And 
Lot's wife turns around to view the city and is turned into a pillar of salt. Um, and then further on in the story, we get into the more um, notable, disgusting type things that we'll talk about in just a little bit. But that's kind of the overarching timeline of the story of Lot. It's not a pretty picture, um, but that is essentially what happens in his story. And we're going to go through and kind of pick apart some of the more detailed bits of that. Something that I find very interesting too, and this even harkens back to the last episode we did in this series when we talked about Elimelech and Naomi and how, um, you know, in a difficult time of famine and really of God's judgment, that they did not seek advice and wisdom and counsel from their king, God, and um, inquiring of what they should do. Instead, they just acted and they moved and they actually removed themselves from the presence of the Lord. And I think it's really interesting here. Now we come to Lot, which, you know, timeline, Bible wise, you know, the chronology, this is before. Um, But as we're tying this series together, we see again, another couple, another family, another really spiritual leader of his household, who when this strife came up between his servants and Abraham's servants, We don't see Lot inquiring of the Lord or even getting counsel from wise Abraham on where he should go and where he should take his family. Instead, he just kind of acts almost on impulse, it seems, and pitches his tent toward Sodom. And I feel like that, you know, in the Bible, there are sometimes very little phrases that hold a lot of depth. Yeah, I was just looking actually at Genesis 13 and it said, And Lot lifted up his eyes and beheld all the plain of Jordan that it was well watered everywhere before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah, even as the garden of the Lord, speaking of Eden, uh, like the land of Egypt, as thou comest unto Zor. So he's, the point is, it says in Lot, lifted up his eyes. And how often do we see, especially in the Old Testament, that reference to the eyes leading you in a particular direction. Um, And Lot allowed his eyes to make his decisions for him instead of the Lord making his decisions for him. Yeah, and we'll get into this more as we kind of dive into some of the applicable truths that we take away from this family. Um, But just be careful where you pitch your tent. You know, we don't uh, live in tents anymore. We aren't, the majority of us, I would say, aren't sojourners. Um, You know, we tend to put down more roots in this day and age and in our cultures. Um, But be careful where you set your affections. Colossians 3.2 says, set your affections on things above not on things on the earth. And I think when we allow our eyes to look horizontal, um, that's what Lot was doing here. He he took a horizontal view instead of that vertical view, keeping his eyes on Christ, um, that that's where he started to sink. He started to sink towards Sodom. Um, he started to become indifferent and complacent. And, you know, we're going to get to a point in the story where it is just mass chaos and um, corruption. And we stand there and we look back and you might wonder, a lot might've wondered, how did I get here? Um, but it all started with, with his eyes and with him pitching his tent towards a place that was just known and full of wickedness. I think it's interesting too, how often we as believers forget where the blessings come from. Um, because if you, if you look earlier in, in Genesis 13, what you find is that Abraham and Lot got extremely wealthy because of the blessing of God and the protection of God. Because in in chapter 12 is when Abraham made the big mistake of going down into Egypt during famine and his wife and all that stuff got messed. It was a big mess. Anyway, when he came out, the Egyptians gifted him with a bunch of 
uh, gifts because God had essentially plagued them for harming him. The hand of God and the blessing of God was on Abraham. And so Lot had gotten wealthy, not because of Lot, but because of Abraham and because of his proximity to the blessings of God. And then when things get rough and his servants are arguing with Abraham's servants, what's the solution to the problem? They separate. In fact, interestingly enough, it's Abraham's idea for them to separate. But Lot doesn't argue about it at all. Instead, he lifts up his eyes and he begins to think, well, what's the best thing for me? Instead of stopping and thinking, wait, no, I'm, I'm blessed because I'm in proximity to the man of God. I need to figure out how I can be blessed, how I can stay blessed and stay in the will of God rather than, because it's, it's being in the will of God is what caused all this blessing in the first place. We have a tendency to forget that. We have a tendency to forget that, um, that although our blessings that we receive in life are not always financial, like lots were at this time the most blessed place you can be is in the presence of God and doing exactly what God wants you to do. It's not always the safest. It's not always the wealthiest, but it is the best place for you to be. And we so quickly tend to forget that when we lift up our eyes and we look at the world around us, we tend to think, you know, I'm reminded of David in the Psalms. How many times did he say, you know, my eyes are seeing the success of the wicked. What, what are you doing, Lord? Why are the wicked succeeding? And, and, and those that are following you are in poverty. Um, and then the Lord reminds David, no, you're exactly where I want you, and they'll have their day, but it's temporary. And as we find out in this story, Sodom and Gomorrah was extremely temporary. It wasn't going to last very long, and Lot ended up being excessively poor at the end of his life. Well, something, too, that I'm just kind of wondering here as we're going through this, was it wrong for Lot and Abraham to separate? Obviously, Abraham, you said he's the one that suggested it. Um, and the... The circumstances behind this, God was blessing. They had so many uh, resources and cattle and all of this that it it was bumping into each other. And okay, so maybe there really did need to be some type of division drawn here. Um, and, And maybe that was not the great error that started a very quickly downward slope. Um, but I really think, you know, Lot had a choice. He could have separated, you know, we hear all the time, you know, if, if you're moving on in life, if God's bringing you to a new chapter, don't burn the bridges behind you. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and, and maybe, maybe there were negative things that went on. Maybe there's a reason that you're moving on. Maybe there's no negative reason. It's just time for a change. Um, but whatever in your past, don't, don't let that make you bitter and have just this very negative outlook on a season that God had you in. And I see that in Lot here. They could have still separated, but kept fellowship, kept communion. I mean, they were family. They could have intermingled. But we almost see that this was a crux where when Lot decided, okay, yes, let's separate, um, he went in a very different direction. He went in the one direction Abraham was completely unwilling to go. And Lot knew that. Yeah. Um, and Abraham knew that. They knew that when the choice was made. And I think that is, that's the problem here. It's not necessarily that they needed to separate or needed to get a little bit of distance. It was just this complete um, cutoff of, okay, well, you're choosing this way, but I'm going to choose the exact opposite. And really, that just started a domino effect in Lot's life and in his family 
of them going further and further and further away from the presence of God, from the blessing of God, and from the hedge of protection of God. Abraham had to do some serious intervening to get Lot brought back into that hedge. Yeah, verses 12 and 13. Abraham dwelled in the land of Canaan, and Lot dwelled in the cities of the plain and pitched his tent toward Sodom. But the men of Sodom were wicked and sinners before the Lord exceedingly. And then, right after they separate from one another, in verse 14 it says, And the Lord said unto Abraham, after that Lot was separated from him, Lift up now thine eyes, and look from the place where thou art northward and southward and eastward and westward, for all the land which thou seest, to thee I will give it, and to thy seed forever. So God is beginning to show Abraham and and continuing to promise these things to him, and we're going to eventually see the fulfillment of that in the person of Jesus Christ. But that particular portion where Sodom was, where Lot went, Abraham had everything except that. And we actually find at the end of Lot's life, interestingly enough, that that land becomes the land of the Moabites, which are the descendants of Lot, and it stays the descend- the, the people of Israel are actually not supposed to mess with the Moabites. So they keep that property. God let him have that, let his descendants have that, but Abraham's descendants were supposed to get everything else. So separating from the blessing of God was a huge mistake. So let's go back to this timeline a little bit of the story. Okay, so we have Lot really, we come to this crux, we said, Lot uh, chooses to pitch his tent towards Sodom. Fast forward a little bit, and all of a sudden, we find him um, with his family. He has at least a couple children here, based on what the scripture says, some daughters. Obviously, that means he's got his wife at this point. Um, And it says that he is sitting in the gate. So we kind of did some research on what exactly did this mean in that time in history. So Lot was kind of like the chief magistrate of Sodom. He was what would equate to being a mayor. Well, I think what's what's even more interesting about that is in back in chapter 14, the the kings of the cities all go to war with one another. Lot is taken captive because his own city can't protect him. And then after Abraham wrecked, rescues him, he goes right back to living in Sodom again. It, it, it's so bizarre to me. But then in verse number or in chapter number 19, that's when the angels come down to Sodom and Abraham's already had his his prayer to God and he keeps working God down from 50 to 40 to, to 30, all the way down to 10 people. If there's 10 righteous in the city that God would spare, it was, a pro, it was the promise that he had made. So the angels go down to Sodom and they're looking for these 10 people. You know, that's kind of their job is to look for the 10 righteous people. And if they can find them, great. If they can't, they're supposed to get them out of the city. They go down to the city and where do they find Lot? They find Lot in the gate. And when we did our our historical research on this, what we found was that the man who sat in the gate, he's not like a guard. He's not a merchant. He's literally the mayor of the town, essentially like today's what we would call a mayor today. He was the one who would welcome delegates from other cities and show them around the city, and he would he would make big decisions, and that's why he was debating with people in the gates, and that's where the, the, the business and the commerce and the government decisions were all made, was right there in the gate. So he was an incredibly important person, a political figure. Uh, the entire town knew who Lot was. What does this tell us about Lot, though, and his family? To go from pitching your tent to being the chief magistrate of Sodom, who is known for its evil and wickedness, that tells us a lot about how he led his family, about where their hearts were, where their priorities were. 
So Lot ends up being not just a wealthy man, but now he's a man of incredible influence. And why do you think that Abraham was debating with God saying 50, no 40, no 30? Because Abraham's probably thinking to himself, surely a guy with as much influence in Sodom as Lot has made some kind of impact in Sodom and Gomorrah. Surely there's 10 people, especially if you think about his family. And and on that note, how many family members does Lot have? I mean, the, there's a bit of a debate on that, but um, he has at least the two daughters. He has sons-in-law, and he has two virgin daughters. So it depends on how you look at the word sons-in-law. He might have four daughters at least, or he might have had just the two, and perhaps it was a betrothal. But it, it, at the very least, it was Lot, his wife, and two daughters. That's four. And the two sons-in-law, that's six people that he should have had influence over. And that means that they would have only had to have reached four other people. And with the kind of influence that he had, there's no reason why Lot couldn't have reached four other people. Absolutely none. Unless Lot was not living, living a separate life unto the Lord. And that's what we find in the New Testament. We'll get there in, in a little bit. But um, that's what we find about this, this man and his family life was that they pitched their tent toward Sodom, not to be an influence on Sodom, but because they lifted up their eyes and they saw all of the worldly and earthly benefits they could receive from Sodom. And it completely destroyed any kind of righteous influence that they might have had in that place because their eyes were in the wrong place. They didn't keep their eyes on the Lord. They had their eyes on the plain of Jordan instead. So continuing on in the story, uh, this is where it starts getting really kinky. So we have these angels come to Sodom, um, trying to find these 10 righteous to warn them of the fire of the judgment of God that is coming. Um, and then this story just gets wild. Um, so they come to Sodom. Lot, obviously, this chief magistrate welcomes them, meets them, takes them into them into his home. And next thing you know, there is a mob outside of Lot's house literally trying to beat the door down to get to these angels for sexual reasons. Um, it's pretty well known that Sodom and Gomorrah was known for homosexuality. These men were so deviant that they wanted new flesh. Um, you know, you, you hear all the time in preaching and stuff that sin never satisfies and, you know, you indulge in one way and the next thing you know, you need something um, bigger and deeper and grosser to get that high, that, that, you know, sensation from sin. And that's what we see here in this mob that they were willing to beat down the tour to get to these visitors of lots. Um, and you know, then, then we have lot come and say, Hey, please leave my guests alone. They weren't going to have it. So lot offers his two virgin daughters to this sex crazed mob which probably would have killed them. Literally told them, here, take them for the whole night. Do with them whatever you please, but please leave my guests alone. Like, I'm just saying, what on earth are his girls thinking? I sure hope they didn't hear their dad offer that. Because like Sim said, if you're going to offer your two virgin daughters to a mob of these sex-crazed men, they're, they're more than likely going to die of repeated rape. Yeah, there's very little doubt in my mind that they would not have survived. I mean, they just they couldn't have. But these men were so far beyond that. They wanted 
what they wanted and they wanted nothing else and they were going to get it. They were going to beat the door down in the process. And the the way you know that too is is bizarrely the angels take away their eyesight and the Bible says that they spent the entire night trying to find the door. Even blind, they were fighting to try and find the door to get to these these visitors from out of town. I mean, that's it. it, it it's almost impossible to even conceive of that people could be that depraved. But then you turn on the news or, you know, get on social media or something and you find out, you know what, people really are that depraved. And we're not we're really not that far from Sodom. Well, I'll never forget Pastor Sexton, who's now went to heaven, but our pastor back in the States told a story one time about how he was visiting in a hospital and he was actually in the AIDS unit and how, I mean, literally these men there were dying from AIDS. I mean, a horrendous way to die in pain um, from living these homosexual lifestyles. And yet they were literally crawling out of their rooms to try to get into other rooms just so that they could have intimate relationships with the other people that were there dying from AIDS. And as almost as, I mean, it's not humorous. I don't want to use that word, but just as unbelievable as that sounds like that, that is the state that some people are in, in our world, just so given over to sin. But that is what Lot has subjected his family to. Yeah. I mean, to the point where he's willing to offer his daughters to this. Um, but it doesn't, it doesn't start that way. It's not like Lot ever thought that his life would look like that. I mean, I don't, I don't think he ever conceived that of, of his life looking like that in, in the beginning when he pitched his tent in that direction. It's, it's the natural end of a life that is pointed in the wrong direction. I was talking a good pastor friend of mine. We used to do a podcast together, but he, he made a statement once that I thought was very interesting he said, how far off on a compass do you have to be pointing to no longer be pointing north? And the answer is, you know, a minuscule amount, half of a degree, less than half of a degree. And the further away you walk pointed in the wrong direction, the further you get from your destination. Even even being off by just half a degree, you're walking in the wrong direction. And the further away you go, the further and further and further and further away you get. Lot pitched his tent towards Sodom. Sodom's the opposite direction. And so it's only natural that over the course of time pointed in the wrong direction, you get further and further and further. And sin always takes you way, way, way further than you ever intended to go. And that's where Lot ended up. And sometimes Satan works uh, very flamboyantly, but oftentimes he is very subtle in the way he works. And that's what we see here in Lot's story. Um, in Luke 17, verses 28 and 29, it says, Likewise also, as it was in the days of Lot, they did eat, they drank, they bought, they sold, they planted, they builded. But the same day that Lot went out of Sodom, it rained fire and brimstone from heaven and destroyed them all. So, you know, we're talking about this, you know, how did Lot get from A to B? But it was just, it was in the daily. It was in the moment by moment, um, you know, giving a little here, not caring so much about this there, um, turning a blind eye here. And next thing you know, this is where they're at. And I, f- I find that in these verses. I mean, this is just day-to-day life stuff, eating, 
drinking, buying, selling, planting, building. That's just your mundane, your everyday, your routine, the things that you do on Monday, on Tuesday, on Wednesday, and then all of a sudden, fire, brimstone. Um, but but what is happening in those moment by moment that what we might deem as a mundane, just living out the responsibilities and mm-hmm. routines of life, I, I think sometimes we can get distracted, um, disenchanted, disoriented, whatever you want to call it, but we just get so caught up in the rat race of life that we aren't vigilant at the trajectory of life sometimes. And I feel like that's what we see in Lot's family. I mean, they were just caught up in the buying and the selling and the magistrating and the taking care of their, you know, taking care, quote unquote, of the needs of their family. But Lot was missing a very huge need of his family, which was their spiritual need. I think Jesus gives us that warning when he says, where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. I mean, Jesus wasn't just talking about physical wealth. But in this story, that's exactly how it turned out. Lot was more concerned with his physical wealth, and his heart ended up in a sinful place and in a sinful condition. Um, Colossians 3.2, set your affections on things above, not on things in the earth. Lot set his affections on things of the earth, and it led his entire life into ruin. Um, and that's a principle that we find out all throughout the Scripture. In the brief period that David's heart's affections were not pointed towards God, he's the man after God's own heart. So for the vast majority of the time, his affections were straight. But in the brief period of time in which his affections were not straight, he ruined his entire family. I mean, we have to guard our hearts because here, I mean, we're talking about David. We're talking about a man after God's own heart. This isn't a lot who just seems kind of wishy-washy from the start and pitches his time. I mean, this is David who we want to be like, you know, Um, but yet he let his guard down momentarily. And he so quickly fell. You know, but the Bible says, take heed lest ye fall. When we go through these studies, we're not saying like, oh, look at these terrible, horrible people. How could they possibly have lived their lives this way? No, we're saying, but if not for grace, it could be us. Yeah. I think it it harkens back to what we talked about last on uh, with Elimelech, um, especially for the men. With Elimelech, his big problem was that he was trying to take care of his family's physical needs to the neglect of their spiritual needs. And what we find in the in the story of Lot is exactly the same thing. I don't know if he was married or if he had a family. I think that he probably did, judging by the fact that his children were old enough that they were marriageable. Um, but if he did, even if he didn't have a family, he was going in the wrong direction to find a good one. If he did have a family, he was leading them directly into destructive path and a destructive lifestyle because he was taking them out of the spiritual blessing of God and into the physical blessing of the world. And when we set our affections on things here on the earth, we are bound for destruction because this world is going to be destroyed. It is under the judgment of God. Um, That's one of the worst financial transactions you can make. One of the first worst financial decisions you can make is to invest in something you know is going to be destroyed. This earth is under the judgment of God and is going to be destroyed. Investing anything here doesn't make a lot of sense. Investing in things in, in, in heaven putting your treasure in heaven where moth doesn't eat and thieves don't break through and steal. That's the best investment you can make. And Lot chooses the wrong investment here and it leads his family to destruction. So going back to the story, the angels come, they get through that crazy night um, and they tell them Lot, the world, you know, this, this city is going to be destroyed by fire. You need to get your family. You need to get out of here. Um, 
Lot tries to get his sons-in-laws. They basically just kind of laugh. They laugh him off, um, yeah. And like Simeon said, we don't know if they were betrothed to the two daughters that did go out with Lot and his wife, or if Lot had daughters that burned in Sodom. We don't really know. Um, but Lot, Mrs. Lot, and the two daughters are all that leave the city. Um, and God said, don't turn around. Don't look back. You run. And, you know, we find really this is one of the only mentions of Lot's wife in all of this. Yeah. And and we know her as the pillar of salt. When You know, oddly, actually, since you said that, she's she's not mentioned until the angels are taking them, the Bible says, literally by the hand out of the city, dragging them out because they're dilly-dallying and making excuses why they're not ready to go yet and all this kind of thing. And the angels grab them by the hands and drag them out. So Lot's wife is not mentioned until they're being dragged out of the city. So I, you have to wonder where is she in all of these conversations? Is it, is she not even around? Is she not even interested? Yeah, (laughs) exactly. Or, you know, perhaps she was over at the married daughter's houses or something. I don't know, but she is nowhere to be found. And, that begs another question is what kind of marriage did Lot and his wife actually have? It certainly wasn't one that was based on the scripture, but if she wasn't even involved in these conversations, we just don't know. It's entirely possible she was there the whole time and the Bible just doesn't record it. But it seems to me very strange that she's not mentioned until they are dragged out of the town. And even in this one little glimpse that we have of her, I don't feel like you see unity as a couple and unity in their marriage because Lot's face and her face are pointed in two opposite directions, mm-hmm. um, which shows, you know, your actions stem from where your heart is, where your treasure is. You said that earlier. And when, when they left, we find Lot's wife turning back and looking back at Sodom and God did what he said he was going to do, which was turn her to a pillar of salt. I thought this was so interesting as we were preparing for this. Our pastor here in Australia preached a message about being a salty Christian. Um, salty in the sense of, you know, in Matthew, when it talks about how we're the salt of the earth. Salt and light. That we are to be a witness for Christ. And Simeon mentioned it earlier, but obviously Lot and his wife were not that witness for Jehovah in this wicked city of Sodom. They were not the salt that they should have been. So I find it quite ironic that she is forever memorialized in that pillar of salt um, now in, in, in her death. And it was really interesting as we were again studying some of the background and geographical and historical context of all of this. Um, it's believed that Sodom was destroyed about 1890 BC. And if you go try to find Sodom now, it has been so devastated. You do not find any remains of a city. You find salt and sulfur. Like that's all that was left behind. And even some sources say that there is this loosely woman-like statue pillar of salt that you can find in that area. Now, you know, of course, all the tourist things, you know, you can go pay to see the pillar of salt's wife. (laughs) As someone who's been Um, to Israel, most of that is tourist traps, but. It was interesting though. But the reality is where Sodom and Gomorrah once stood, there is now nothing but devastation and salt and sulfur. They did a um, archaeological dig. I actually covered this in an episode of um, Blue Collar Theology, which was a podcast that I ran for a little while and may get back to eventually. Um, but they did, did an archaeological dig in a particular area, and they found for several square miles a layer of rubble. 
as they were doing this dig. And just for several square miles, it is just complete rubble. And um, looking at it and the char burns and there's pottery that literally melted rather than shattered, which is means it had to have been subjected to extreme heat um, for several hundred square miles of just destruction. And so in, in recent, more recent history in, in Russia, there was something called an airburst event, which is a meteor that exploded in the atmosphere and then rained fire on a whole area of property. When this happened in Russia, there was nobody there. It was in the middle of nowhere. But um, they're thinking that it is possible that that's the kind of event that caused that destruction. Well, all of that destruction is right there in the Jordan Valley where the Bible records Sodom and Gomorrah. So there's a really good chance that that, that particular portion of land that was completely leveled is this event that God used this uh, airburst meteorite. I mean, it's entirely possible that God just created this stuff and threw it at him out of midair too. But, um, you know, God, God can do whatever he wants. That's his purview. But if it was something like this airburst meteorite, that's exactly how it could have happened. Um, but in the process, you know, this, this woman, I, I have to, I, you know, I feel for her. I do. And I understand her emotional state getting dragged out. And especially if there are two more daughters involved and grandchildren behind as a mother, I I could see the tear, you know, I'm like, why did Sodom hold her heart? What was it about that wicked perverse city that caused her to defy God's command and look back? But there very likely there were people that she loved that they left behind. Um, And so I do sympathize with that. But there again, when she had the chance to impact them, she didn't. Mm-hmm. And, you know, if if you truly love someone, you need to take the chance that you have right in front of you because you may not have five minutes later, five days later, five years later. Yeah. And they were warned. I mean, that's the thing is, is Lot went to the sons-in-law and begged him. And in that, in that custom, in that culture, the daughter's you know, they wouldn't have left on their own. He needed to go to the sons-in-law and convince them. And they were so far gone. Oh, and that's been heartbreaking to me too. Exactly. Because, okay, they did get heads up. They did know, hey, this is how much time we have left with you. Um, But they had that opportunity, but they had so lost their testimony and their reputation and their credibility of truth that when they came to their loved ones, they laughed, they scorned, they made, you know, it made it a joke. Um, which again, you know, that, that was a foundation that had been being laid over time of disregard for God's word. Um, not having the truth of the Lord being preached and taught in the center of the home. I think the biggest part of this story comes down to lot being a believer. And that that's the hardest part for us, I think, to understand. We think this guy must have just been a horrible human being. Um, but that's not what Second Peter says. Second Peter chapter 2, verse 7, uh, verse number 6, it says, And turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes, condemned them with an overthrow, making them an ensample unto those that after should live ungodly, and delivered just lot, vexed with the filthy conversation of the wicked, for that righteous man dwelling among them, seeing and hearing, vexed his righteous soul from day to day with their unlawful deeds. So this passage in Second Peter makes it, it reads as if Sodom is not directly involved 
with the disgusting behavior of the city in which he dwells. But he is consistently subjecting himself to it. And I have to ask the question, as Christians, how much worldliness do we voluntarily subject ourselves to? And we say, oh, I'm not involved in it, but I'm willingly subjecting myself to being in the presence of wicked behaviors on a regular basis. Well, and I think too, you know, a lot of times I have heard people say, well, I'm going to send my kids to public education because they need to be that salt. They need to be that light. They need to be the missionary to the kids around them. Um, Most grown adults can't handle If it's hard enough for, yeah, for us as adults to take a stand in a wicked world, that is too, that is asking too much of our young, immature children who are not fully developed in their faith. I think it's completely unfair. I'm I'm not judging anyone whose kids are in public school, so please don't think that. But No, um, no, I'm the the argument though the, is it's what a I poor was argument. addressing. It's a poor argument. We don't send boot camp soldiers to the front lines of the battlefield. They have to be trained before they can go, right? Well, we've, I can do this, share this episode that I did like forever ago with Denise Palmer on the greenhouse effect. You know, you don't take that seedling mm. and immediately plant it out in the direct sunlight of the field. You have to cultivate that in a safe environment. Yeah. And it, it, so it, it's, it's unfair to expect that, you know, a, a grade schooler or a middle schooler or a teenager is, you know, there might be some, but the vast majority of, of believers at that age, they're, they're one, they're not physically mature, but they're also not spiritually mature enough to go to battle like that. And it's exactly what it is. It's a battleground. And I think a lot of people just don't realize it is not the same school that it was even when I was a kid, let alone when other, you know, grandma was a kid, completely different environment than it is now. The world we live in is much closer to Sodom and Gomorrah than it has ever been in before in the Western world. It's, it's, it's complete deplorable and depravity. It's just, it's awful. I read a book one time and I'm not saying that the public education system is communist. I'm not comparing it to communism, although it's probably (laughs) headed in that direction. Um, but so this mother, I can't remember what country it was, something Eastern Europe. It was a communist country. Um, they, she was in a place where she was forced to send her children to the communist school where they were brainwashed all day. Um, But when they came home, she spent like, I mean, three, four hours of their evening every day where she just carved out their schedule and she sat and she taught them God's word and she instructed, she combated the lies with truth. Yes, literally deprogramming them. And it said they were, they, they grew up rock solid. I mean, mm-hmm. they were solid Christian people, sure of their faith. But that mother, and in that in that situation, she had no choice. She couldn't pick off from a, you know, a smorgasbord of educational opportunities. Um, but it was possible for her to raise her children in such a wicked environment, still for the Lord. It just required some intense sacrifice and work and intentionality. That's the situation that we're in. And we are supposed to be salt and light in a wicked world. Um, But you cannot do that by bathing in the wicked world. You do that by being separate from the wicked world. And I find that interesting. In fact, I've been preaching through Titus 
And one of the main things that it says, and when, when, when Paul is giving Titus the qualifications of a pastor, it says that they are supposed to be holy. And that word is separate. That's what that word means. It doesn't mean he doesn't live in the culture. It means he's separate from the culture. He's different. There's a distinction. You can't live in the culture, be like the culture, act like the culture, and make any difference on the culture. You're going to be exactly like they are. So we had originally planned to kind of like walk through the story and then give you the lessons that we gleaned at the end. I think (laughs) we've kind of like (laughs) woven that through the entire episode. Um, So this isn't like beautifully packaged with a ribbon on top. You're going to really have to just listen in and dig to get all of the nuggets of things that we've gleaned from this. But I think one thing, really, as we just try to hone in on the marriage, because even as we came to this Bible story or, you know, in the words of Ken Ham, a biblical historical account, (laughs) um, I like that. You know, it's not a fairy tale. This is this real. This has really happened. As crazy as some of this stuff sounds. Um, you know, we we came to this like, okay, his wife is mentioned in these few words. So what can we learn about their marriage? What can we draw from from that angle? But I think one thing that we really were talking about together that just was very impactful and a good reminder to us as far as just zeroing in, looking at their marriage is like like we said, we don't know if Lot's wife was saved, if she was lost. We don't know where she falls in all of that. But we see that they were not equally yoked. And I always heard that preached, don't marry an unbeliever. If you're saved, don't marry somebody who's not saved, who's not a Christian. Um, but Pastor Sexton, again, a few years ago, preached on this and said something that really blew my mind. He said that two people who are saved can still be unequally yoked. If those oxen are not moving on the same path in the same direction to get, like Simeon said, wherever that compass is pointing true north, you both are walking true north, not even one being slightly variant off, then you are unequally yoked. Um, And that was so interesting to me. And I thought that was so good. I'm saving it one day for when my kids are teenagers, when I have an opportunity to influence teenagers, I use this because it doesn't mean, oh, just find somebody who says they're saved. No, you want to, you want to be yoked with someone who is headed in the same direction as you. And I hope that is towards Christ, but Lot did not have that. We see this, like we said, when he's facing one direction and she has the repercussions of facing the other Um, and throughout this, we don't find them side by side, hand in hand, going to God, um, being that threefold cord that we read about in Ecclesiastes. They were not each other's accountability partners. And in marriage, you, you need to be that for one another. You need to be each other's prayer warrior, each other's sounding board, each other's encouragement. You need to be that accountability partner. Um, take it a step further. Okay. Let's just say his wife was, let's just say they weren't unequally yoked, um, or they weren't equally yoked, whether she was just a lackadaisical Christian or she was unsaved. What do you do if your spouse is not equally yoked? Um, we believe in marriage for life, that when you make that commitment, that covenant, you're married. Um, so, you know, lots not getting out of this, but what could he have done if he did not have that accountability partner in his wife? He needed to find it in in a godly man. And he had that for a time. He had that in Abraham. And going all the way back to the beginning of the episode, we see him removing himself from that relationship, from that counsel, from that hedge, 
And then the, from that point is where we really start. So, you know, I, I just, in my mind, I'm picturing those like, um, you know, funnel donation things in the mall where you put the penny and it's first, yeah. it's going really slow around that big uh, loop at the top. But the next thing you know, it's funneling quicker and quicker and quicker. And all of a sudden it's down the hole. That's what life's lots life looks like to me. Yeah. Um, I think too, I was just thinking about, I can't remember off the top of my head where the passage is because it's not something that I prepared, but um, where Jesus says that that we're not going to be given a temptation that's above that which we can take without providing a way of escape. And what we find in Genesis 14, when Lot gets taken captive by these other kings, who rescues him? Abraham. Abraham rescues him. God provides a way of escape for Lot. Get out of Sodom. Here's your perfect opportunity. You just got kidnapped. Everything you had, every person you loved, get out of Sodom. Here's your chance. And he doesn't take it. And he winds up getting and falling in love with a wicked place and becoming the mayor and all this kind of stuff. And it, it, and by then it's too late. His family's lost. His kids don't think one ounce about him and his Christianity. Well, we're his not even really going to walk down the rest of the story just because we're trying to focus in here on the marriage. But I mean, how does the story end with Lot? It ends with him getting his virgin daughters pregnant. I mean, it just, it, like I said, that funnel goes quicker and quicker and quicker until you're just in this black darkness. I mean, and that's it. I mean, his life, his Christian walk was so non-existent. He not only was he not a light, he was essentially a black hole. I mean, everything that this man dealt with became a disaster, a city destroyed and a, a marriage destroyed, a family destroyed. And then he is the father of the Moabite people, which were a thorn in the side of Abraham's descendants for the rest of existence still are to this day. So that is the kind of thing that we're talking about here. And, and, but it's much, obviously it's all on a much grander scale when you look at biblical history than probably what you and I'll have to deal with. But I can promise you, if you point your life and you set your affections on things here on the earth and you point your life in that direction, it will do significant damage, not just to you, but to your kids, to your spouse, to everything in life. And Brittany asked the question, what do you do? What do you do when when you feel like you're pointed in the right direction or you're at least trying to be pointed in the right direction and your spouse just is not interested? Well, to be honest with you, that's a really difficult place to be. It's a really, really difficult place to be. You have to be consistent yourself. The reason why Lot had no influence on his family is not because they were in Sodom. The reason why Lot had no influence on his family is because he had proven himself to be a hypocrite. Everything that he said, professed to believe in, he did not believe in. Not genuinely. He didn't act like he believed it because he lived in Sodom and he allowed his, vex his righteous soul to be vexed on a regular basis. You cannot have an influence on the people in your family or the people in your life when you are consistently delving into the same things they're delving into, when you are consistently living the same way they're living. This is not you trying to be better than anybody else, but you following the Lord Jesus Christ on a consistent, regular basis and having a genuine Christian life, which is not easy to do. I can't even imagine how difficult that must be when you're married to someone who could care less. But it, it comes down to consistently living righteously. That's the only way you can have an impact. It doesn't always work, unfortunately. 
but it can it can work and we see that in the new testament where paul instructs those people who are who are married to unbelievers and he says that that you living the christian life and continuing to live the christian life might just win that person to christ but it might take time and it, and it may not happen it may not happen at all and the bible gives i feel like good examples of this um so let's just real quick here look at it from from the husband from the man um, I see in Hosea and Gomer, you mm-hmm. know, we had this unequally yoked thing. So what did Hosea do? Um, Hosea loved her. He went <laughs> after her over and over again. When she was unlovely, when she was not worthy of it, as we might think, he loved her. Um, as Christ loves the church, he continued to love her, to try to woo her unto himself, to forgive her. Um, I'm sure he prayed for her and brought her before God because ultimately no, no matter how much nagging or rescuing or hedging about or loving that Hosea did was going to change her. It was only something that Christ could do on the inside. Um, so I think we tend to use prayer as a last resort when it should really be our first. But we see that um, from the man's perspective. But then as the woman's, I think sometimes we come to this and we're like, okay, well, my husband isn't the leader that he should be or we're unequally yoked. But we often feel that because of the command to submit, we struggle with, okay, well, where do I cross the line of submission yet doing what I feel like I need to be doing spiritually and for my family? Um, And I get that. I've heard that question before. And I understand that there is a delicate balance there. Um, but two different illustrations from God's word that quickly came to my mind was one, Abigail. Abigail was unequally yoked to foolish Nabal. Mm-hmm. And yet, uh, and we're, we're actually going to delve into this couple here in the next couple months. Um, but she is a beautiful example of a meek, quiet, not quiet and meek like a doormat. This lady was strong. Um, but she was wise. She knew when to speak. She knew when she needed to stand up. And she stuck up for her husband in ways that make no sense to a lot of us looking from the outside. We're going, why are you sticking up for this jerk for? Yeah. But, uh, and ultimately she did not win him to Christ. God (laughs) exacted judgment on him. Um, but God took care of Abigail. Um, and then the last one is just the classic example of Lois and Eunice, Um, the mother Mm. and grandmother of Timothy, uh, you know, Timothy's father was a Greek. He was, they were unequally yoked. That couple was, but the, the mother and the grandmother stayed faithful, not loud and obnoxious and beating the dad over the head to drive a wedge and have strife in their home. And I'm sure it wasn't an easy place to be. I can only imagine if you have those two opposing worldviews. But they just faithfully lived out their beliefs, their they, love yeah, for Christ. And they saved their son. They did. Yeah. They had an impact on Timothy. Um, so that just, you know, I know we've went long here, but I really feel like that was my greatest takeaway from this couple is that accountability. And again, if you don't have that in your spouse, that spiritual um, go-to person that you can go to for encouragement or counsel or prayer or to be able to have a conversation and feel like, okay, we're on the same plane here. Um, I think it, the Bible says that in the multitude of counselors, there is safety. I think it is good to have, you know, men, an older man, women, and older women. You don't want to cross there. That can cause its own set of problems, especially if you're in a marriage that's unequally yoked. Um, but if you can find someone who's further down that sanctification road that is mature in their faith, that you can lean on for strength, especially as you're dealing with a difficult, unequally yoked marriage, yeah. you're going to need that person that will encourage you to keep at something that is hard. 
Um, but I, I wonder how would Lot's story have played out differently had he leaned on Abraham yeah. as that mentor? I would, I would say this for men, and I think I alluded to it last time when we talked about Elimelech and Naomi, but if you're going to lead your family out of the place of the blessing of God, it better be because God led you out. Abraham left Ur of Chaldees because God led him out, not because he just wanted to. It wasn't, you know, it wasn't, he wasn't moving for a better job. It was because God let him out. Um, Mary and Joseph, they don't leave Bethlehem because they want to. They leave Bethlehem because God led them out. And guess where they went? They went to Egypt. Like, it's not like they were going to Jerusalem. They were went to Egypt. So, but God led them out. That's the difference is God led them out. Not they just went because it was safe there um, or they thought it would be better there. When God leads you out, it's one thing. If God doesn't lead you out and you purposefully remove yourself from the place of God's blessing, Elimelech and Naomi moved themselves out of the um, bread basket of of God, the house of bread. um, And they went to Moab. And here we are talking about the origins of Moab. Um, this is where Moab came from. The removing your family from the place that God is blessing. Where is your family getting its spiritual nourishment from? If you're in a solid, good biblical church, don't move unless God moves you. Just don't do it. Don't do it. It's just it, it's bad decision making. Even if the pews are blue and you wanted green. <laughs> <laughs> but if God is moving and you're working and your family is growing and 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 the church is preaching the word of God. Unless God moves you, don't move yourself. That's that's really what I'm I'm seeing from this passage is is the one thing that Lot had going for him was Abraham. And when he removed himself from Abraham, everything fell apart. So thanks so much for listening to this episode. I hope that it has been beneficial for you. It was for us, but this is what we gleaned from it. Um, so go, we didn't say this at the beginning. Hopefully, you know, by now for the NHC family episodes, hopefully ladies, you grabbed your husband and he listened to this with you. Um, but go as a couple and get God's word and ask God to illuminate this story to you and show you what he has for you to learn. Um, we'd love to hear that. Feel free to email me at no higher calling podcast at gmail.com. You can engage with me on Instagram at no higher calling underscore, but I would love to hear what God, um, is teaching you through these studies. You can find these studies. I'll link this down in the comments. We're grouping all of these in one location so that it's easily able to be found and referenced on my website. So I will link that down below. If you didn't listen to last month last month's episode and you want to easily find that without having to scroll through the podcast archives, you also will get a sneak peek at a few of the couples that we have lined up uh, coming in the next few months. We roughly have sketched out where we're going to go throughout the year. But if you have any suggestions on couples that you'd like to hear us tackle, feel free to send those our way as well. Um, But thanks so much for joining us. We look forward to joining you again in a few weeks on the NHC family. Thanks for listening. I hope that the No Higher Calling podcast has been a blessing to you. If so, please subscribe, share with your friends, and engage with me on Instagram at nohighercalling underscore. You can also subscribe to receive the No Higher Calling encouragement email on my website, which is www.nohighercalling.org. This includes podcast notes, what I'm reading, spiritual encouragement, a glimpse into my home, and some of my favorite products and resources. You can also enjoy more content on the No Higher Calling YouTube channel. I pray that this podcast will encourage you to fall more in love with Jesus and to be the Christian woman he's called you to be. Thanks for listening.